Follow your thoughts like a Christian. We all follow our thoughts all of the time. We all of us follow our thoughts all of the time. Meaning our behavior, our actions, always sits downstream of that which we have already conceived of in our minds. Following your thoughts can be a very dangerous thing. It can be a very dangerous thing unless your thoughts are biblical. When you've trained your mind to think along the contours of Scripture, then your actions, your behavior, your words follow and are befitting of the gospel. We are responsible to think biblically and to follow our thoughts like a Christian. Paul makes this argument in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning all the way back in verse 17. You'll remember his exhortation is that we would not walk, using there a metaphor to represent living, do not walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And there's the important connection. Your walking, your actions, your behavior is an outworking of your thoughts, your thought life. So Paul says, in essence, think like Christians and then follow your thoughts through so as to behave like Christians. And he unpacks within that unit something of what it means to be a Christian. He says, you've learned Christ. To be a Christian is to have apprehended Christ as a Savior, as the only possible Savior, the only means by which we may be reconciled to God. You've learned of his glory. You've learned of his worth. You've learned of his love and affection and you've learned of his grace and you've submitted to all that he is. And to some degree, you've trained your mind and your heart to adhere to him. Paul says the truth is in Jesus. Truth is not to be found elsewhere. There are not many sources of truth. Jesus himself places an exclusive claim on the gospel of Jesus Christ when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus renders the Christian faith exclusive. You cannot come to the Father apart through him, apart from him. He is the only means to be reconciled to God, and so we can say the truth is in him. It is not to be found elsewhere. Our responsibility is to learn Christ, to keep learning Christ, to keep worshiping him, to keep beholding him, to keep taking him in as he has been presented to us in the scriptures, and so to learn the truth. You're training your mind in the truth every time you learn more of Christ. And the connection that Paul is inferring here as he so frequently appeals to the doctrine of us being in Christ is very simply that if, if, if the truth is in him and we are in him, then we should be people of the truth. We should be people who have a strong 
an evident association with truthfulness. And so when he concludes that unit, verse 25 and following, is a series of five imperatives, five commands, all hovering around that idea of truthfulness. Paul wants us to follow our thoughts like Christians and anticipates that when we do so, having learned that the truth is in Christ, we would be people of the utmost integrity. Our whole lives would be truthful. We would not be deceitful. We would not say one thing but mean another thing. Our interactions with one another would be honest. We would be known as those who conduct ourselves with the utmost integrity. Last time we considered the first three of Paul's imperatives. I labeled them as follows. We are to speak truthfully. We are to relate truthfully. And we are to work truthfully. It was Paul's encouragement in verses 25 through to 28. Putting away falsehood, we're to speak the truth with our neighbor. We're to say exactly what we mean. We're to speak in accordance with our beliefs. We're to be honest with one another. We're to relate to one another truthfully. Be angry and do not sin which is to say our anger must never consume us, even if the anger is indeed righteous, we're to demonstrate this measure of self-control, and more than that, we're to ensure that the sun never goes down on our anger, because when you allow anger to remain, it becomes a pathway to bitterness, to pride, and oftentimes to deceit. We relate to one another truthfully, and we work truthfully. Let the thief no longer steal. He's to stop conducting himself in a way that lacks integrity in the workplace. He is to work not only until he has provided for himself honestly, but more than that, until he has provided to the extent that he is now able to share with others. And so you really see there the transforming power of the gospel. As God creates us anew in Christ, we are utterly changed. We are transformed. The thief no longer steals, but more than that, he works so hard as to make sure that he can share with others. The glory of the gospel is put on display in your work ethic. Speak truthfully, relate truthfully, work truthfully. In the remaining verses, Paul issues two more imperatives. I have labeled them, we are to minister truthfully. We come here on a Sunday, we are all ministers. We are to be ministering the truth to one another, ministering God's grace to one another. We are all ministers and we are to minister truthfully and we are to respond truthfully. We respond to one another and our sharing of our lives is to be one that is conducted with the utmost honesty, dignity, respect of one another all of it grounded in the truth that God has shown His grace to us. Why are we concerned to behave in this way? Because it ordains the gospel. It is right for us to respond to the gospel of our salvation by conducting our lives with the utmost truthfulness. 
And so we'll work through these two imperatives this evening, and I pray as ever God is working out yet more his glory and his grace amongst us as a church. Verse 29 and 30, we are to minister truthfully. Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. The word there, corrupting, is an interesting word used elsewhere to speak of rotten wood, withered flowers, or rancid fish. Don't let rancid fish come out of your mouth. Don't speak in such a way that rancid fish are coming out of you. It's what Paul is telling the church in Ephesus, which is to say it is entirely possible for a Christian to speak in such a way. Your words count. They have more value than perhaps you realize. When you speak, you are doing things. You are affecting people. You are causing things to happen in the lives of those who hear your words. And so it is possible to speak in a detrimental manner. It is possible to tear people down. It is possible to do great damage to one another if you allow corrupting talk to come out of your mouths. You have that option. Or you can speak in a way that is good. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but here is the contrast, only such as is good for building up. Now notice the metaphor Paul uses, that metaphor of building should be very familiar to us by now. He uses it many times through the epistle to the Ephesians. The notion of building invokes the theology of the church and where the church sits in redemptive history. Remember, we are here to do the work of the ministry. That is not an isolated verse that you happen to find in chapter 4 of Ephesians that is disconnected from the theology of the letter. That is not a passing comment that Paul decides to throw in there. He wants us to understand what happens every single Sunday as doing the work of the ministry, contributing to what God is doing as we yearn for the return of Christ and the full revelation of His glory. When we gather here on a Sunday, there are wonderful things happening every single time the saints worship together. Things that go far beyond our understanding. There is a building of the church as we enter into the spirit of the ministry. And when Paul uses the metaphor of building, he intends for us to understand that reference. And speaking has a particular role within the building of the church. We've rehearsed it before, but it's worth thinking upon again. Our God is a God who spoke as the means of creating. God spoke and the universe came into being. That sets a precedent. At the very beginning of the Bible, God established a precedent whereby the work of the ministry is done through speaking. He said, let there be light, and there was light. 
Then God raised up Moses and he commissioned Moses above all things to speak. Moses was a preacher. He spoke to the people of Israel and as Moses spoke and issued the law, there was a moving forward of God's plan. And then after Moses came more prophets and their ministry, above all things, was a ministry of speaking. God has established that words would do the work of the ministry and so the prophets spoke. After the prophets came Jesus himself. And Jesus did many things, but don't miss the fact that a very central part of his ministry was to teach. And Jesus, John tells us, is the very word of God. Jesus was one who spoke, and again, redemptive history advanced through him, and then he passed on the baton to the apostles, and the apostles speak. The apostles preach sermons. This is why when you read the book of Acts, you see over and over and over again, one speech after another, they understand the importance that God has afforded to their speaking. And the apostolic age comes to an end. But the importance of our words continues. This is why central to the ministry of any healthy local church is the preaching of God's word. We sing and we pray and we fellowship and we preach the word. Because we understand within the bigger picture the centrality that God has afforded to the speaking of his word. This is why we read Scripture out loud together. This is why we stand and we hear God's Word read on a Sunday morning to honor and to acknowledge the importance of the Word spoken. This is why the Word is preached Sunday by Sunday by Sunday, but it doesn't end with the preacher. You have a responsibility also to speak. And it is central to the building up of the church. When you speak, there is a ministry. A ministry of building the church. This is why last week we saw that Paul invoked those words taken from Zechariah chapter 8. It wasn't that he just happened to like the way Zechariah spoke of the importance of speaking. He wanted to pull all of the theology from that glorious chapter into the present and say, by your words, you are moving God's plan forward. Therefore, speak the truth to one another. It is no small thing to be a herald of the truth. And here he would say, don't allow your talk to be corrupting. Don't allow your words to drag one another down. If you can't speak in a way that is edifying, close your mouth. And if you're able to speak that which is good, open your mouth. Be a church member who speaks that which is good for building up. Now certainly this demands great wisdom on our part. Paul says, speak only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion. That's very, very hard to do. There are times 
when a certain word spoken would not be good for building up. And there are other times when that same word is the word to speak. The manner in which you speak your words can be just as important as what you say. How you speak can be just as important as what you choose to say. There is much speaking that though true in the moment would not be good for building up. It requires much wisdom to know what the occasion demands. And then he says, the goal, the goal of your speaking is that it would give grace to those who hear. And so you think about your words, many, many words spoken. Think about your words and understand that the goal is that you would always be a means of grace to those who hear. Now, you'll often hear me talk about the fact that God has established the primary means of grace as being his word and prayer and fellowship. We have many means of grace available to us. God has been very good to give us many means by which we would be encouraged and sanctified and caused to persevere. The three primary means of grace are his word and prayer and fellowship. And you have a role to play in that third category. As the saints gather together, fellowship should be contributing to the building up of the church. Which means the goal of your speech is to cause Christ-likeness in those around you. I wonder when the last time you thought that was, as you come to church, what is in your mind, what is your desire that morning as you approach this building? Is it to produce, by God's grace, a Christ-likeness in those around you? Think about that as you come to worship here. You are here present to serve one another. If you're in membership here, the other members of this church are your spiritual responsibility. We all have a responsibility towards one another. I am responsible in some measure, to some degree, for your Christ-likeness in the same way that you are responsible to some degree, in some measure, for mine. And we need to take the corporate nature of our pursuit of Christ seriously. So how is it I can cause, by God's grace, in you a looking like Jesus? How can you bring that about in my life? It is to speak the truth in love. It is to speak the truth to one another as is fitting for the occasion so that your words would be a means of grace to those who hear. I would encourage you to pray to this end. To pray that your words would be a means of grace to others. To think carefully about what you will say and what you will not say. Think carefully about when it would be best for you to keep your mouth closed. And think carefully about the opportunities you have to speak that which is true 
in love, with grace and humility, so as to encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is our responsibility towards one another. Jesus is our foremost example. In Luke's Gospel, in chapter 4, he opens the Scriptures, he reads them, he adds comment to them, and Luke tells us all who heard marveled at him because he spoke with grace. Now, I don't think that was only true of that moment for his whole ministry. I do believe people marveled at his words because he spoke with grace. But consider just how broad was his ministry of teaching and speaking. There are times when Jesus rebuked, and it was necessary. It always came from a place of love. He always had love as his foundation when he issued a rebuke to his disciples, but there was times when it was necessary for him to correct. There were times when he simply taught, when he explained, when he opened up God's Word and he spoke to his disciples, showing them the meaning of the text. There were times when he proclaimed himself, when he taught about his person and his mission. There were times when he encouraged. And we could go on and on. His ministry was broad, but it was always with grace. He was speaking words of grace so as to build up those who had submitted to him, and he should be our example. Now, it's difficult to overstate the importance of this ministry. We all have this ministry. Without exception, the Word of God commands us to speak. Speak that which is good for building up, that it may be grace to those who hear. It is difficult to overstate the importance of this responsibility. Paul adds in verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. As you read this text, you might think that verse 30 is a new command. Verse 30 sits separate from verse 29. Verse 29, he says, speak that which is good. Verse 30, new command, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. But in fact, that one word, and, bears an awful lot of weight in this instance. It's not to be understood as a separate command, but verse 30 explains how, or excuse me, verse 29 explains how we would grieve the Holy Spirit. The two are connected. Don't speak corrupting talk. In so doing, verse 30, you will grieve the Holy Spirit of God. To be clear, there are many ways in which you may grieve the Holy Spirit of God through your actions, through your thoughts, through your conduct, through your disobedience, through your failure to repent. There are many ways in which you can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. But here, in Ephesians 4 verse 30, Paul is making a connection between our corrupting talk and the Holy Spirit and saying, Foremost among the ways in which you might grieve the Holy Spirit is by issuing out talk that does not build up. Now, why would Paul make that connection at this 
point, why would he draw attention to our grieving of the Holy Spirit as an outworking of our talk being corrupted? Every believer has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of him. From the moment that you believe upon Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence with inside you, and he will never leave you. One of the greatest blessings of the Christian life is that the third person of the Trinity resides within you. That is true of every Christian, and one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit to you as a believer is that he illumines your mind and your heart to understand this book. Let me say that again because it is so important. One of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit to you as a child of God is to illumine your mind and your heart with reference to this book. People think the Holy Spirit is primarily desiring to bring about something apart from this book. They could not be more wrong The Holy Spirit is desiring to bring about an understanding and a desire and a submission to the Word of God. There is a tight connection throughout the New Testament between the Holy Spirit and God's Word. So as a Christian, when you open this book, and I trust you are in this book regularly, reading it and feasting upon it, when you open this book, the Holy Spirit is so working in you that you find it to be life-giving. You read this book as an unbeliever, unregenerate, having not received the new birth, and this is any other book. You will not understand it, at least in not, not in the way that it gives life. You will not be compelled to read it. You will not be drawn to it. You will not find it to be sweet and satisfying. But when you open this book as a Christian, it is altogether different. Now this book truly is to you alive. Now this book is living and active and it is life-giving. And you have a strange, inexplicable desire to open it and to read it. One of the surest ways I know that God has been at work in your life so as to save you is that you say to me, all of a sudden now I have a desire to read the Bible. I don't know where it came from, but I want to read this book. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in you. And He is drawing you into the truth so that you can never get enough of God's clean and perfect law. And with the psalmist, you can now say fully with integrity, how I love your law, O Lord. So the Holy Spirit is leading you in a ministry of apprehending and grasping and drawing from God's Word. As you do that, your heart and your mind are being changed. This is the renewing of the mind that Paul speaks about in Ephesians 4. It happens in this book. So you're in this word and the Holy Spirit is working with you to illumine you to see the truth. And there is a renewing of your mind, an ongoing process where you start to think more and more and more like God. And then you speak. 
And you have two options. With that whole theology in view, you now have two options. You either speak that which is good for building up the body. Or you open your mouth and you speak corrupting talk. So can you see that when you decide to speak words that are not a means of grace to those who hear, how it is you would grieve the Holy Spirit. He has taken up residence inside of you. He is working with your soul to give you understanding of the truth. There is a supernatural forming of your mind and your heart into the likeness of Christ. And then you speak. And you spoke words that don't accord with His grace. With all of that grace having been afforded to you, you then speak and your words run contrary to the grace that God has given you. That grieves the Holy Spirit. It distresses the Holy Spirit that after His labors... For your good, you would then choose to use your words in a way that does not build up the body of Christ. It is so important that we take this responsibility seriously. And in fact, it doesn't even end there. Look again at verse 30. Paul adds on. A description of the Holy Spirit, verse 30. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. There are many ways Paul could describe the Holy Spirit in verse 30. He chooses to describe the Holy Spirit as our seal for the day of redemption. Again, this is not a new thought to us in the context of Ephesians. You'll remember back in chapter 1, as Paul spoke about the ministry of the Spirit to us, he said the, the Spirit has sealed you for that great and glorious day. The ministry of the Spirit is not only to illumine our hearts and our minds as it relates to the Word of God, it is to testify to us of the coming glory of Jesus Christ. The ministry of the Spirit testifies to us that this is not it. That we haven't arrived, praise God, that there is more to come. The ministry of the Spirit is to keep every Christian looking forward, yearning for the revelation of our Savior. It is, as I said back in chapter 1, as if God deposited within us a slice of heaven. A foretaste of glory. Now, if Paul describes the Holy Spirit here in verse 30, in that way, it would seem that he intends for us to make a connection between our talk and the day of redemption. He describes the Spirit as the seal for that day in the context of saying to us, make sure you speak in a way that is building the church. Which is to say he orients this whole command with a forward-looking nature. You can think about it like this. Much, much of what we do every Lord's Day is but a rehearsal for the great day. 
say this often, when we take communion together, I'm always burdened to remind you that what we do here as we take of the bread and the cup is to rehearse for the day when we will feast with Christ. Communion is both backwards looking and forwards looking and I often feel that many churches neglect the forward looking nature of communion. It is a remembrance. It is right we Think upon the death of our Lord Jesus, the sacrifice, the giving of his body and his blood. It is a remembrance at the same time. It is a rehearsal. Jesus said himself, do this until I come. You read the accounts of the saints taking communion throughout church history and one Reality that marks their participation in the Lord's Supper is joy. Such joy when the saints come round the table and they get to take of it again. What is the source or the, the direction of that joy? It is that they understood so keenly we are rehearsing today. This is just but a small expression of what we will one day do with Christ. extends much more than just with communion. When we gather together on the Lord's Day and we sing, what are we doing if we are not rehearsing? We have a choir practice every Sunday. We rehearse for the day when Revelation 4 and 5, we will be gathered around the throne of Christ and we will sing with pure voices, with no sin in us. Our minds will not be distracted in that day. We will be focused exclusively on Christ. We will delight in Him. Our worship will be perfect. We are rehearsing every Lord's Day when we sing. In the same manner when we enjoy fellowship with one another. What are we doing if not rehearsing when we speak to one another and we counsel and we encourage occasionally we correct and we love and we support and we minister grace to one another we are rehearsing for the day when we will be gathered around the throne people from every tribe tongue and nation and we will collectively enjoy Christ Without sin and with him bodily present, we will enjoy Christ fully on that day. So think about the implications if you choose to use your words in a way that is not good for building up. It is as if you have stopped rehearsing. It's as if you've stopped rehearsing. When your speech is not carefully chosen, preceded by much prayer. God, give me wisdom to know how to use my words this day. When it's not that kind of speech, it is as if you stopped rehearsing. Far worse, when your speech is not only failing to build up, but is in fact corrupting, tearing down. 
Redemptive history is moving forward to its climax, to the revelation of Christ and the manifestation of God's glory the whole world over. And now you would speak corrupting talk. So as to go in the other direction, why as a child of God would you ever allow your your lips to speak such words? We must not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom we have been sealed for the day of redemption. Very practically, how can we ensure that we minister to one another truthfully? Read your Bible and ask God how the text should affect your speech. Very practically. Read your Bible. I would encourage you to memorize Scripture. As a constant discipline in your life, be internalizing the Word of God. Because you'll be surprised once you've internalized the Word of God, how readily it becomes your speech. And as you read and as you memorize, pray and ask God how this text should inform my speech. That's the fourth of the five imperatives Paul gives in this unit. The last I've labeled respond truthfully. Beginning in verse 31, he says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now that's a long list there. The word bitterness speaks of a, a pointed response, a sharp Response grounded often in resentment. Wrath and anger go together as something of a a pair. Certainly a large degree of overlap in their meaning. If there is a distinction there, wrath would refer to our immediate response. Anger, our low-level, ongoing response. Clamor with slander, clamor taking the sense of shouting, raising our voice negatively, slander, abusive speech. And then finally, malice, which is wickedness. Mal intent, you intend somebody harm. Paul says, put away all of these attributes. He talks in that list about our attitude, our disposition, our actions. It encompasses all of who we are. And he says, put all of these things away from you. Disassociate yourself from these characteristics. They're not befitting of a child of God. They're not befitting of one who has been born anew by the gospel. The exhortation, by contrast, verse 32, is so simple. Be kind to one another. Be kind to one another, that is, be pleasing to others, be appropriate to others. You grieve with those who are grieving, you rejoice with those who are rejoicing, you are a delight to be with. Other people enjoy having you around because your actions, your word, your disposition, your your behavior is kind. It's loving, it's, it's Well thought of by others. 
be kind to one another, be tender-hearted. Here, Paul prizes open what is going on inside as he uses a word which speaks of our innermost feelings. And it is not to be a surface-level behavior which is not true and genuine, but innermost feelings are to be those of compassion. They're to be those of mercy. They're to be those that seek the good of others. We genuinely desire the very best for those around us. We are tender-hearted. And then he says we are to forgive one another. We're not to hold grudges. We're not to resent one another. We're to deal with issues quickly. We're to forgive one another. Now, there may be consequences for a person's sin, but there can never be at a heart level a resentment. There must be a letting go of offenses. We are to be gracious. We are to not interact with one another based on a perceived level of merit. Just think about that. We are not to behave towards one another based upon a perceived merit. Somebody's earned my time. Somebody's earned my love. Somebody has earned my goodwill and my efforts and my labor. That is not how we are to interact with one another. If that's how God interacted with us, we would not be here tonight. We are not to interact with one another based on a perceived worthiness. We are to be ready to forgive and always conduct ourselves with the utmost grace and mercy towards one another. Why? Because that is how God was towards us. Final few words of the chapter. As God in Christ forgave you. Most directly, this is a qualifying phrase that helps us understand the exhortation to forgive one another. Most directly, as Paul writes, as God in Christ forgave you, he's giving us the incentive to forgive one another. But I think it is fair to say broadly across this whole text, it forms a theological framework for understanding how and why it is we are to obey all of these commands. We are to obey all of these imperatives with the utmost diligence because God in Christ forgave us. Again, we see that the Christian life is only ever an outworking of the grace that we have first received in Christ. God is not asking us to work so as to earn his favor. He says, in Christ you have it fully. He is not asking us to labor at these disciplines so as to earn his love. He says, in Christ, you have it fully. He brings into view the entirety of the gospel narrative as the grounds by which we live our whole lives. Very active lives, certainly. We are to be very active people. If all we did was to camp out in these five imperatives, we would be very active people based upon these verses alone. We are to be doers of the word. But we are to be doers of the word as an overflow of our gratitude to God who saved us and who forgave us in Christ. 
And this is so important for us to remember and to rehearse on a daily basis. It's very easy in the Christian life to slip into a means of obedience that is fueled by our own strength. It is so easy in the Christian life to lose sight of the grace of the gospel. We're so fickle. We so quickly forget. We feed on God's word and we praise him as we see his grace towards us in Christ. And the very next moment, we can behave as if we knew nothing of it. We are to remind ourselves frequently that it is because of the grace of the gospel given to us through Christ that we respond. You see, if we labor in our own strength apart from a consistent acknowledgement in our minds and hearts of God's grace, these commands will be a burden to us. They will be an almighty burden. They will not be life-giving. They will not bring us joy. They will weigh us down and we will be miserable Christians. More than that, we will not persevere in obedience to them for very long at all. You understand you cannot go very far in the Christian life if you are not renewing your mind and your heart to the truth of God's grace regularly. There may be some measure of success, at least externally, in submission to the imperatives of Scripture, but it will not last very long. It will not be joyful to you. It will not be encouraging to you to walk the Christian walk. What you must do is set your mind and your heart consistently on the grace of God as it comes to us through the cross of Christ. And that is when you are equipped and ready to obey. That is the only way in which you will live truthfully. That's when we as a church will speak truthfully. It's when we're fixated on the grace of the gospel that we will relate to one another truthfully. When we're saturated with the grace of the gospel, we will work truthfully. We will minister to one another truthfully and we will respond truthfully. All in response to God's grace. May this be his work among us. Would you pray with me now to close? Father, we give you thanks for this portion of your word as we have considered your desire for us, your design for the church. We marvel at the responsibility that you have placed on our lives that we would be people of the truth in our words, our relationships, our work, in our ministry and in our response to one another. We must be people of the truth. The truth is in Jesus. And so we must be people who delight in Christ. Lead us ever in a rehearsal of your grace that we may be found obedient to your word 
I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.